This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi. Today I'd like to talk about what makes humans unique. Many people would point to the sophisticated uh, technologies that we have, like this Saturn V rocket uh, that have spread our species around the globe and even carried us into space. Uh, For good or ill, humans are now one of the major causal forces acting on Earth's biosphere, and technology is the reason. Any serious attempt to understand human evolution must consider our long, informative engagement with technology. But first, we need to take a step back and ask exactly what we are talking about here. What is technology anyway? You know, everyone can agree that things like rockets and computers are examples of technology. Um, But what about bodily techniques, sophisticated meditative practices? What about uh, social engineering? Uh, Are these technologies? Are they arts, sciences? What's the difference? Uh, Technology has been defined as everything from a set of hardware to a system of abstract rules for problem solving. Uh, For example, language and number systems have been described as cognitive technologies. B.F. Skinner envisioned a technology of behavior. And Foucault enumerated technologies of production, sign systems, social controls, and the self. Potential meanings of technology thus range from the smartphone in your pocket Uh, to all of human culture and cognition. Since we need to agree on terms, here is a conventional social science definition of technology. Technology is an integrated system of hardware, people, skills, knowledge, social relations, and institutions applied to practical tasks. I think this captures a lot of what is interesting and distinctive about human technology, um, but it leaves the critical question of what exactly constitutes a, a practical task undefined. And they were essentially asking us to make a subjective and value-laden judgment about what qualifies as as practical. For current purposes, I'd like to make this definition a little more precise uh, by grounding it in evolutionary theory, and particularly the way in which technology and biology have co-evolved to shape human minds, bodies, and environments. So humans inhabit a technological niche that we ourselves have constructed. Uh, Take this scene from the famous Shibuya crossing in Tokyo. So arguably, there's not a single natural thing in sight. Even the bodies of these people have been transformed by our long history of reliance on technology. From reduction of the jaws and teeth and guts through external processing of food to our manipulative hands and arms and, of course, the large energy-hungry brain. But the other thing I want you to notice is how many people there are. Human children with their big fancy brains take longer to mature and much more parental support than any other ape. And yet there are more than 7 billion of us and precious few of them. Paradoxically, human women have the shortest interbirth interval and the highest total fertility of all the apes. Simply put, human mothers should not be able to afford this rate of reproduction. The reason they can is because they receive support from others, fathers, grandparents, siblings, other members of the community, and so on, in what has been termed the human biocultural reproductive strategy. So for this to be possible, of course, uh, these others must be producing more than the bare minimum needed to support themselves. Chimpanzees basically don't do this. Uh, they have a production and consumption um, that basically track each other with very little difference throughout their lifespan. Humans, on the other hand, have a very long, costly childhood in which we consume a lot more than we produce, but eventually uh, we do learn to produce a real surplus. Uh, this is enabled by, of course, culturally accumulated knowledge and skills for material production. Uh, in other words, what I would call technology. This can lead to a powerful biocultural feedback cycle where technology increases production, which enables sharing, which supports extended development, long lifespans, and population growth, which allows in turn for a large brain and heavy learning investments, which enable further technological elaboration and so on. This feedback cycle has produced a human-constructed technological niche populated with increasingly complex systems for material production. 
So this evolutionary grounding finally allows us to be a bit more specific about what we mean by practical tasks. What I'm proposing is that technological systems are practical in the very concrete sense that they support the material production underwriting our species' entire biocultural reproductive strategy. This evolutionary framing allows us to focus on key features of technological systems, including the fact that they are socially reproduced, deeply collaborative, and they concern material goals to enact physical changes in our environment. The key distinction I'm making here is between materially instrumental tasks that are intended to achieve physical changes in the world and communicative tasks that seek to alter the thoughts, behaviors, or experiences of the self and others. Human culture clearly encompasses both of these kinds of goals, but technology is here defined by its focus on the material goals, materially instrumental goals. In this sense, there could be technologies for the production of communication tools, such as books, musical instruments, or computer networks. Um, but there would be no technologies for effective storytelling or musical composition or rhetoric or social messaging. Systematic approaches in these communicative domains might better be termed arts or sciences rather than technologies. Uh, but that's not our focus here. Uh, this distinction may seem kind of semantic, um, but it's important because material and communicative goals tend to have very different functional demands and design constraints. Material goals are shaped by physical situations and materials, uh, which may be relatively invariant across time and space. Communicative goals, on the other hand, must address human psychology in the context of specific cultural systems of meaning. They will thus tend to implicate different cognitive processes, learning strategies, and cultural evolutionary dynamics. So all of this finally places us in a position to ask the core question, uh, what is it that makes human technology possible? We could argue about whether non-human tool use qualifies as technology or not, uh, but clearly there is a massive difference in magnitude between the, the termiting wand here and the cell phone that's being displayed on, and this requires some kind of explanation. So currently the most popular explanation is that human technology is made possible by our uniquely evolved capacity to learn from each other. High fidelity social transmission drives a lossless ratchet effect where each generation adds to the products of the last until we have complex technologies vastly beyond any one individual's creative ability. Uh, this compelling concept of human cumulative culture is illustrated by a thought experiment known as the island test. So imagine you grew up alone on this island and survived somehow. What would you be able to reinvent on your own in a single lifetime? Probably most of us could manage some chimpanzee tools like a termiting stick, but not something like a cell phone, which clearly requires generations of accumulated knowledge. Um, so the argument then goes, it is this high fidelity social learning that is the key difference that made human technology possible. But I don't think that is enough. So let's imagine um, that you also have a phone on this island, um, that you can not only copy this phone, um, but you can use it to call the world's experts in cell phone technology, look up plans, instructions, and whatever you like. Now, would you be able to make another phone? I still don't think so, uh, because technological production is about more than just information. It requires materials, infrastructure, social institutions, trade networks, and so on and so on. There's a lot of complexity in technology, right? So the point is uh, that there's probably no one thing that makes human technology possible in general. Rather, humans display a wide variety of different technologies with different demands for different kinds of cognitive and motor skills different forms of social and individual learning, different material and social infrastructure, and so on. Nevertheless, I'd like to suggest that some synthesis is possible um, by focusing on the three unifying technological characteristics I outlined earlier, being material production, social collaboration, and cultural reproduction. For example, the materiality of technology allows for the accumulation of complexity beyond what any one person could hold in their head and provides a durable medium for collaboration across time and space. Technological materials embody information and persist across generations as a new form of cultural inheritance. Durable artifacts and situations like this blacksmith's workshop 
uh, are environmental resources that scaffold cognition by externalizing the information representation and manipulation. Uh, this enables the evolution of complex technological goals and extended action sequences beyond the planning and memory capacities of individuals. This critical material amplification in turn depends upon exceptional human capacities for skilled interaction with the physical world. Cognitively, this skilled interaction is supported by internal models of the world that can be used to simulate and predict action outcomes. Uh, this allows for smooth anticipatory control and action planning. So normally you don't notice this kind of thing, but just imagine how it feels um, when you reach out to pick up a, a container, say a tea kettle, and you think it's going to be full of water and heavy, and you get ready to do that, and then you have your arm jerk up uncontrollably when you find that your internal model is actually inaccurate, and you need to revise your understanding of the world you're operating in. Right? This physics engine in the brain is particularly well-developed in humans compared to other primates. And it is thought to play a parallel role, not only in uh, planning and executing actions, but in understanding the observed actions of others in a way that allows imitative learning. So this capacity to simulate, understand, and imitate observed actions may also be important for technological collaboration. Unlike simple tool use, technology is often characterized by the coordinated action of many individuals over extended periods of time. Such collaboration is especially obvious in the specialized roles, logistical chains, equipment, and infrastructure characteristic of modern technologies, uh, but is critical even in much more ancient technologies. So at a basic level, the coordination of action between individuals is thought to rely on reciprocal prediction achieved by the very same internal models for anticipatory motor control that I just discussed. Such interactive synchrony, sometimes also called brain-to-brain -brain coupling, can occur at multiple levels of abstraction and provides a key mechanism supporting the development of mentalizing, empathy, communication, learning, and social affiliation. These are in turn critical to supporting technological collaboration at larger group and institutional scales. For example, effective teamwork is facilitated by emergent group properties, including shared mental models, effective states uh, with behavioral and emotional alignment, promoting the self-identification with social groups that motivates norm adherence and allows assembly of larger technological systems. And finally, there is the reproduction of technology. Uh, this is really a special case of collaboration and dependent on many of the same mechanisms. Although social learning is commonly glossed as the transmission or copying of information, uh, technological learning is often a protracted collaborative process better described as the reproduction of skill. The learning demands of different technologies will then depend on the particular skills involved. For example, this is a picture uh, from a longitudinal study of stone toolmaking skill acquisition that we conducted in my lab. We found that although there are some basic concepts to master, um, these concepts are pretty intuitive. The real challenge, as it turns out, is to develop the internal models and perceptual motor precision to actually hit what you're aiming for with the right amount of force. This can take hundreds and hundreds of hours of practice. And the role of the instructor is really more to provide the materials, situations, opportunities, and encouragement for practice, rather than to directly communicate didactic information. Um, now, this might well be different in other technologies that are more dependent on conceptual and symbolic skills. However, it does remain to be seen whether the processes of cognitive and perceptual motor skill learning are really as different as we think. In any case, it's clear that the conventional distinction between social and individual learning and comparative psychology and cultural evolution is difficult to maintain in the case of technology. In fact, uh, these kinds of learning rely on similar neurocognitive mechanisms and are thoroughly intertwined throughout the learning process. This is exemplified by technological apprenticeship, which alternates social learning with individual practice in an iterative process of increasing refinement. Social information ranging from artifacts, tools, and observable behaviors to intentional demonstration, feedback, explicit instruction uh, from teachers guides learners to recreate increasingly sophisticated skills through deliberate practice over extended periods of time, with each round of individual practicing allow allowing deeper appreciation of the available social information, and so on. 
So all of this complexity and variety means that we probably should not be looking for one simple explanation or threshold moment that set humans on an inevitable path to ever more complex cumulative technology. Rather than a major evolutionary transition, uh, we should be considering the complex and historical contingent processes by which the evolution of particular technologies occurred. This would retain the existing attention to social learning mechanisms while expanding the scope of inquiry to consider the broader technological niche of ecological, material, and social arrangements, as well as interactions between technologies. So, for example, it's widely thought that there is some kind of problem, something peculiar about the longevity of Paleolithic technologies like this Acheulean hand axe. These consistent forms seem to suggest the high fidelity social transmission that's proposed to lead to runaway cumulative culture, and yet they don't change for millions of years. Uh, for the social learning hypothesis, this apparent paradox uh, means that we must be wrong about these tools. Maybe they're actually easy to learn with ape-like social transmission mechanisms. Or perhaps our ancestors were actually genetically programmed to make them, and they're not social at all. Both of these solutions have been proposed. Uh, but what if hand axes were just the best solution for the lives our ancestors were living? Technology is about more than just information, and technological choices come with costs as well as benefits. Actually, I mean, a hand axe is about as good as you can get for a stone cutting tool until you add a handle. And is it really worth adding all that wood harvesting, sinew binding, glue making, and so on to your life? Maybe not until something else changes the equation. So the point is that technological feedback can occur, um, but we have no reason to assume that it will always occur or be indefinitely self-sustaining when it does. Uh, that will depend on a wide variety of particular conditions that may or may not apply. From this perspective, we might equally ask why our modern technological systems are so radically unstable as why things change so slowly in the Paleolithic. It's not clear that the answer to such questions will always be something to do with social learning mechanisms. So I've painted a picture of technology as an enormously complex phenomenon spanning a scale from molecules to societies and beyond. How are we to deal with all of this? I, you know, I, I'm not really sure. Uh, but I'd like to think that the vast scope isn't just a problem. Uh, it's also part of the solution. That's because interaction between multiple levels of spatiotemporal organization is a key feature of evolutionary thinking, and it allows synthesis of complex phenomena in terms of a smaller number of recurring relationships and processes. For example, I have stressed the importance of internal models for everything from motor planning to the development of theory of mind and the formation of social institutions. This has led us to suggest a perceptual motor hypothesis for the construction of human technological cognition from ancient primate perceptual motor systems for body awareness and engagement with the world. According to the perceptual motor hypothesis, sensory motor acuity and experience shape the construction of internal models and intuitive physics required for material production. In turn, sensory predictions by these models support the sense of agency and self-other discrimination that underpin human self-awareness, imitation, social cognition, and empathy. These social cognitive capacities enable technological collaboration and reproduction, and thus create possibilities for further biocultural evolutionary feedback. In fact, the frontal parietal systems uh, that support action, execution, observation, and intuitive physical reasoning have undergone major structural and functional changes over human evolution. These systems are also relatively early developing in the life course and directly engaged with the sensory periphery, uh, which makes them a key nexus for interaction between externalizing processes of technological niche construction and internalizing processes of neurocognitive development. So I don't know if the perceptual motor hypothesis is on the right track or not, um, but it does at least make testable predictions. Uh, for example, we would expect basic perceptual motor variation to be associated with otherwise unexpected variation in processes of technological production, reproduction, and collaboration. Uh, but this is just one example of the kind of hypothesis that could be addressed by an integrated cognitive science of technology. I have argued that there is no single cognitive, behavioral, or social essence that defines human technology. So the proper study of technology is going to need to be inherently multidisciplinary and require a comparative approach to identify pattern relationships between contexts, mechanisms, and functions across technologies. We will need to embrace this complexity 
rather than attempting to generalize from a small number of ethnographic examples or experimental manipulations. Finally, the scale of technology is going to further require long-term study embracing a variety of qualitative and quantitative methods, uh, including emerging methods for real-world neuroscience, wearable devices, ecological momentary assessment, and digital phenotyping. So clearly, we have our work cut out for us uh, in studying technology, um, but I'm excited by the prospects. Thank you very much. Greetings. Today, I will talk about ABO blood groups, and we will explore to which extent this system is unique to humans. Blood groups were discovered 120 years ago by a doctor in Vienna who observed curious patterns when he was mixing serum, the fluid from coagulated blood, with red blood cells of certain individuals. You can see here an example of bloods that don't react and serum and blood cells that react in a reaction called agglutination, where antibodies in the serum are coagulating the red blood cells of another individual. He observed by mixing blood pairwise from six mothers that had just given birth, six healthy women, postpartum women, that bloods of different pairs reacted in particular ways. He verified that by also doing the same thing with six with blood and blood cells from six healthy men and discovered that there were patterns of reaction between the antibodies in the sera of certain individuals and the red blood cells of others. And so he described three blood groups, which he, he named A, B, and O. And these differed by presence and absence of certain antibodies and certain antigens, molecules on the surface of red blood cells. It took him several more years to describe a fourth, much rarer blood group called AB blood group, where there was no antibodies present, but both types of antigens were present on the red blood cells. Now, for most of the 20th century, it was observed that unlike humans, where four blood types exist, four ABO blood types, A, B, AB, and O, our closest living relatives, the African great apes, had only A and O types in common chimpanzees, only A type in bonobos, and only B type in gorillas. Of course, in the case of humans, in the context of tra uh, transfusion medicine and transplantations, these ABO blood groups have become extremely important clinically because uh, it is a matter of life and death not to infuse a patient with mismatched blood groups. Now, what are blood groups? Blood groups are defined as inherited differences in biochemical composition of blood and other tissues, it turns out. So what I have here is a cartoon of a red blood cell, an erythrocyte. And on this red blood cell, it's not to scale, you can find a variety of proteins, lipids, glycoproteins, glycolipids. And these, it turns out, can differ between individuals based on their genetics. And blood groups often also include the presence of antibodies against molecules that are not present on our own blood cells. So the topic of today is the ABO blood group, which it turns out is only one out of 40 different blood groups involving over 400 different molecules. As I mentioned, it was the first one to be discovered over 120 years ago. And it involves natural antibodies that appear in early life after the baby's exposure to gut microbes. And it's clinically most relevant. Many of you are familiar with the plus minus that often is written after A, B, O, O, plus minus. That refers to rhesus, which is a protein on the surface of red blood cells. And I shall not discuss that today. So today's topic is ABO, which is defined as little sugar chains on the surface of red blood cells. They can sit on glycoproteins or on glycolipids. Now let's look at a red blood cells to scale. We make ourselves very small and zoom in on the surface of one of our red blood cells. And what we could observe, if we could make ourselves this small, is that the red blood surface, the red blood cell surface is covered with a complicated array of molecules that are short sugar chains or oligosaccharides, also known as glycans. And ABO antigens turn out to be short sugar chains. They are present at a number of about 2 million per red blood cell. 
Uh, to give you an idea, there are other sugars that are even more common on red blood cells, for example, sialic acids, that are present at 10 times that number, 20 million per red blood cell. So the ABO system was discovered in 1900s, 1900, uh, 1901, but it took over 60 years for biochemists to actually zoom in on the, on the biochemical nature of these antigens and another 30 years to discover the genetic basis that determines whether you are A, B, O, or AB in your blood type. Now, it turns out that the genetic basis is remarkably simple. It is a single gene that is located on chromosome 9. The gene does not encode for sugars. Like genes, it is a protein coding gene that encodes for an enzyme, a protein called a transferase, it's a glycosyl transferase that can transfer monosaccharide sugars to little growing chains of sugars. Now, based on the DNA sequence we each have at this gene, you can produce a little oligosaccharide that ends in one type of sugar or another type of sugar, a galactose, instead of an N-acetyl galactosamine. Or your enzyme might have mutations that render it inactive, a loss of function, in which case you do not add a sugar and that would be blood type O. The antigen of blood type O is called H antigen. So the loss of function, whether you make no protein or you make an inactive protein, turns you into blood type O. Now, it turns out that it was only less than 10 years ago that a group in Chicago, Molly Trevorsky and colleagues, uh, looked at a, a phylogenetic comparison of these ABO genes across primates. And lo and behold, what they found is that it seems that this system of diversity between individuals within one species that we call ABO polymorphism is really old. It's as old as primates, more than 20 million years old. And it's somewhat curious that the African apes seem to lack the full system. But many of the other non-human primates you can see have all alleles and they can make the different blood groups. So based on this wider phylogenetic comparison, it's really clear that the ABO system is in fact not uniquely humans. It's a, it's a widespread system of maintaining diversity within populations. If we look at humans and the, the distribution of the different alleles across different populations, we can see that in many populations around the world, you find all three alleles. There are some interesting places, such as in, in the native population of South America, where almost everyone uh, has the O allele. But in modern countries around the world, you find all four blood types. So this is allele frequencies over here, and this is phenotype frequencies, the actual blood type. And you can see that most countries have people with all four blood types. And of course, that's very relevant for clinical uh, use. Uh, we need different blood types in blood banks so we can save people's lives when we transfuse uh, blood. Now, this system is a, is a co-dominant um, system of inheritance where you can have two different alleles, which allows you to be AB or A, even if you carry an O allele. Now, one question is, what, what forces, what evolutionary forces maintain this? Did this evolve to complicate blood transfusions? Very unlikely. Uh, it turns out that pathogens and parasites don't seem to be able to infect people of different blood groups with the same efficiency. ABO blood types are known to affect the susceptibility uh, in, in many different pathogens and, and parasites. Take viruses, for example. Uh, different strains of viruses will specifically infect only people of one or another blood type. Among bacteria, depending on the bacteria, whether it's the cholera bacteria or helicobacter that can cause ulcers or campylobacter or group A or group B streptococci or staphylococcus, different species of bacteria have a preference for certain blood groups and it goes in all possible directions. So these pathogens and, and parasites have selected our ancestors in different directions. The same is true for protozoa, such as the really important uh, causative agent of, of a malignant malaria, uh, Plasmodium falciparum, that prefers A and B individuals over O individuals. It's also true for fungi and even for helminths, such as schistosomes, where there are different preferences of one blood group over the other. 
An additional complication, you might have heard people use the word histo blood group, not just blood group, has to do with the fact that it is now understood that this molecular diversity, this biochemical identity that we, we differ uh, in between individuals, can also be present in other tissues than the blood. About 80% of us make ABO antigens, these short oligosaccharides that sit on glycolipids and glycoproteins. We also make those in our bodily secretions, in our lungs, in our gastrointestinal tract, and in our reproductive tract. 20% don't make them. These people are called non-secretors. And this is based on a different gene, the gene that attaches this fucose sugar to this chain. If this gene is inactive, then you do not produce these secretions on your, in your saliva and other bodily secretions. So human individuals also differ with respect to whether they maintain this polymorphism just within their vasculature or whether they also present it in their lungs and so forth, which are important landing places for infectious agents. ABO is not expressed in connective tissues, muscle or central nerval tissue, nervous tissue. Many years ago, Ajit Varki and I uh, wrote about the evolution of glycan diversity. And one of the questions we, we entertained is that glycans seem to be specifically involved in maintaining diversity. Immunologists have long talked about God, G-O-D, as generation of diversity, with the idea in mind that diversity can be protected. So what you see here is just an attempt by Ajit and me to propose a very simple model where we have individuals of just two types, simpler than ABO. One type is susceptible to this little pathogen here that likes corners, but doesn't like round things. And if you have a mixed population that differs in composition, individuals of two kinds, then what can happen is that the non-susceptible individuals that differ actually produce a type of herd immunity and they protect other susceptible individuals against a population-wide infection. So this is this idea of protection, protective diversity, and it seems that ABO is involved in that. And it's not just recognition. A lot of pathogens use the very sugar chains that define ABO to attach to the host and inf infect. It turns out most viruses, including the current SARS-CoV-2 that causes the current epidemic, pandemic, are enveloped viruses. Enveloped viruses that come out of one individual, say they come out of Pascal, my blood type is A, will carry little sugar chains that look, that are the A antigen on their surfaces. So I would invite you to think of, of infection by enveloped viruses as a type of nanotransplantation. And it turns out during initial infection, when a virus coming out of an A type individual tries to infect the O type individual, the O-type individual has a huge advantage because she or he is making both antibodies against A and B. And so if an envelope viruses with A or B determines on its envelope arrives, it is tagged for destruction by the existing antibodies of the O individual. This effect, of course, only takes place at the beginning of an, epi of an epidemic. As soon as we have enough of each blood type infected, the viruses will find a host that is more compatible. So there's actually quite a lot of evidence for this from both experiments and epidemiology for viruses such as measles, influenza A, um, HIV, and SARS-CoV-2. Now, humans, of course, are, cultural, uh, are a cultural species. We have technology, we have medical technology, and blood transfusions are incredibly important globally. Uh, based on WHO data, there are over 180 million blood donations a year. That corresponds to about 20 Olympic swimming pools of blood that are being given and then transfused into people. And it turns out it is still not enough to cover the demand. Just like the current vaccine rollout, you can see from this map that many places actually are underserved in terms of badly needed uh, blood banks. Now, in, in, uh, in the early 20th century, People like Arthur Morand, who was a hematologist in England, went around the world and collected blood samples from so-called Aboriginal populations that were quite ill-defined, and the collections were far from ethical by today's standards. But they generated some very interesting data showing that 
Across the world, human populations differ in the relative frequency of certain alleles. Very strikingly, South, South America, for example, is almost completely fixed for the blood, uh, blood type O allele. We still don't know the, what the reason for this is. It could have to do with founder events and demographics, but it could also have to do with recent selection. Unfortunately, as with many other uh, enterprises in anthropology, uh, back then, several 20th century European anthropologists decided, well, look at A group seems to be very, very um, common in Europe. Uh, they immediately jumped to conclusion that A, the A blood group must be superior uh, without absolutely no evidence. But that just highlights the danger of studying ourselves and then being biased to finding something that makes us look better than our neighbor. So this was for a long time, people were very focused on proving that A group was better than B or O or AB. And unfortunately, this persists. There is plenty of evidence of surviving pseudoscience with regard to ABO. Some of you might have heard about the ABO diets, which are based on patently wrong theories and actually have been debunked several times and warned against by the British Dietetic As Association. Similarly, there is a type of ABO astrology quite uh, popular in Japan that is known as Ketsuekigata, or blood type and personality, even predicting how you will study for your college exams based on your ABO blood type. And it's used traditionally for matchmaking uh, in, with belief in inconsistencies, incompatibilities between different ABO blood groups. So in summary, the ABO histo blood groups are not human specific because they, they have persisted for millions of years as something that is known as a balanced polymorphism. Whenever one blood group becomes rare, another one has an advantage. It becomes more common until most pathogens target that one, it becomes rare again. And of course, since the development of modern medicine based on human culture and technology, ABO histoblood groups have become very important clinically for the many millions of blood transfusions and hundreds of thousands of organ transplantations a year. So what this highlights really is that this is an example where the ABO blood groups are a non-topic for, for comparative anthropogeny. We only realize that once we, we look at a wider comparison, including other non-human primates, initially based on just comparisons of humans and African great apes, it looked like it was a, a uniquely human feature but it is not. And this highlights the importance of wider phylogenetic comparisons when we ask ourselves questions about distinctly human phenotypes. I thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, the topic of today is food sharing. Humans are unusual in the degree to which we depend on shared food. We are also unusual in our life histories relative to the other great apes. In our early age at weaning, late age at maturity and first reproduction, and decades of life past menopause, the end of fertility in females. Most paleoanthropologists reckon that, the, that these food sharing and life history patterns develop in tandem early in the evolution of our genus two to three million years ago. The question is, how and why were they connected? Two explanations are commonly offered. Both identify features of food shared as central to the evolutionary changes. Both have implications for child survivorship and female fertility. Both speak to the emergence of nuclear families as common units of human social organization. One involves the economic productivity of senior, post-fertile women acquiring plant foods that provision their grandchildren. That's shown at the upper left in this illustration. The other, on the lower right, focuses on big game hunting and scavenged by men to feed mates and offspring. The more widely favored argument called the hunting hypothesis notes that a long-term trend toward cooler temperatures, increased aridity and seasonality beginning about 10 million years ago, favored the spread of tropical savannas. Among the products of this environmental change were increases in the numbers and diversity of large bodied grazers, bobids, equids, and so forth. Ancestral hominid males are said to have, are thought to have taken advantage of these developments through hunting and aggressive scavenging. They shared the meat and marrow they acquired with mates and offspring. This reduced their mates' workload and supported their immature children longer 
so that those children could develop bigger brains for learning and practicing critical hunting skills. Nuclear families as units of common economic and reproductive interest for an outcome. The alternative, called the grandmother hypothesis, cites the same long-term environmental change, but focuses on its implications for plant resources, particularly on the, on the abundance of roots, tubers, and corms. Collectively called geophytes, these were well adapted to the cooler, drier, more seasonal climates emerging at the time. Ancestral hominins in these habitats began to rely more heavily on these resources, especially in dry seasons when other plant foods were relatively unavailable. Some geophytes defend themselves in ways, especially by living deep, that made it difficult for younger hominins to acquire them, but they were readily accessible to adults. Ancestral females continued to collect them as their fertilities declined. Taken most effectively in batches, they could be appropriated by others as they accumulated, especially by dependent grandchildren. Reliable subsidies for dependent offspring favored mothers weaning early, shortening their birth intervals. Females aging more slowly as their fertilities declined could subsidize more grandchildren. Slower aging and greater longevity would increase in subsequent generations. Theory and data across the mammals show greater longevity predicts later maturity. In non-grandmothering taxa, later maturity also brings along later weaning. But in our human radiation, earlier weaning was favored by ancestral grandmother subsidies. These hypotheses can be evaluated in at least two ways. First, by referring to patterns of resource use among modern hunter-gatherers living in environments similar to those of the early Pleistocene facing similar opportunities and constraints on foraging. Do either of these two strategies in the present support reliable food sharing? Second, by referring to hominin fossil and archeological records of resource use relative to evidence of life history changes, do they correlate as either hypothesis predicts? A subpopulation of the Tanzanian Hadza, 250 to 300 full-time hunter-gatherers living in the East African Rift has been a primary ethnographic referent in pursuit of answers to these questions. Until recently, they represented the best available venue for assessing the real-time plausibility of either hypothesis. A University of Utah UCLA team, Kristen Hawks, Nick Lurton, Jones, and myself, spent more than 300 days over six years between 1985 and 1990, gathering quantitative data on time allocation foraging returns, and food sharing among these people. During our time in the field, Hadza men hunted an average of about four hours each day with bow and poisoned arrows. They often encountered big game, gazelle, antelope, zebra, and giraffe, the latter shown, serving as a stool for the fellows shown in the slide. But hunters succeeded in taking these animals on less than 4% of hunter days, only about once every hunter month. They also succeeded in aggressively scavenging large hills from lions when the latter were still feeding, an effort that accounted for about 20% of all large prey Hadza men acquired. Meat from these prey was distributed widely in each, hunter, in each hunter's 25 to 50 person camp, sometimes to people in other camps as well. Most of the meat any hunter took was eaten by non-family members. Most of the meat his own family ate was acquired from other hunters' kills. There was no quid pro quo reciprocity between hunters. Some hunters were widely, highly successful at taking big game, others were less so. These differences did not affect the distribution of meat from any hunter's kill. Men, women, and children expected shares of what was often referred to as the people's meat. It was not seen as the property of the successful hunter. It was more like a public good. Even in the dry season, the times when kills were most often made and scavenging most often successful, returns were highly variable. Periods of one to two weeks without meat in any given camp were not uncommon. Moreover, as archaeologist John Speth has observed, dry season meat is often fat depleted and of relatively poor quality. This was almost certainly true in the distant past. These data show that contrary to common assumptions, 
the hunting hypothesis is not supported by observations among modern hunter-gatherers operating like ancestral hominids as bipedal tool-using pedestrians in a seasonal environment. Ungulate and large predator populations were different, but certain basic constraints were the same. Big game hunting in these situations does not supply a reliable, high-quality food resource. This image shows two senior Hadza women quick cooking, quick cooking a pile of tubers collected over the course of a few hours. This image lists some characteristics of Digna frutasens in Hadzane, Taikwa, a resource taken year-round by Hadza. Because of the depth and soil characteristics in which it occurs, its acquisition requires substantial upper body strength and endurance. Hence, it is taken only by adults. Senior women acquire it at the same rates as do their adult daughters, but they spend more time on the task, often acquiring more than 5,000 calories per collector day. We found that their efforts determined weaned children's weight changes while their mothers were nursing new babies. Combined with mammalian life history theory, these observations provoked the grandmother hypothesis. Micro are reliably taken year-round in batches that invite sharing. Their acquisition depends on, on vigor and endurance. Senior women who have these qualities are more effective at provisioning their grandchildren and enhancing their daughter's fertilities by shortening those daughters' birth intervals. To the degree resources like this were taken in the past, these sharing patterns, increased longevity, and related changes in life history would have been favored. Tracking the use of plant resources in the ancient archeological record is difficult, but not impossible. Meanwhile, it is possible right now to monitor changes in longevity in the fossil hominin record. Research by Barbara Finley and colleagues at Cornell University has shown strong correlations among mammals between longevity and brain size. Increases in, in hominin brain size relative in to ancestral forms like Artipithecus begin well before 2 million years ago. An important threshold may have been crossed between 2.8 and 2.1 million years ago, coincident with the emergence of genus Homo. Marginal consumption of large-bodied prey by hominids is apparent by 2.6 million years ago, but not prominent archaeologically until after 1.9 to 2 million years ago. In other words, the life history shift toward the modern human pattern apparently began several hundred thousand years before evidence of substantial human meat-eating. Reliance on another novel energy source for the increase in longevity and associated brain size is implied. Geophytes and other plant resources like them are potential candidates for this role. Why then the increase in carnivory? Archaeological and stable isotope data imply an order of magnitude jump in mean consumption for some populations of genus Homo after 1.9 million years ago, at least in part through aggressive scavenging, defined as driving initial predators off their kills before they are finished eating. That's a dangerous operation. Larger body sizes and, and group sizes in Homo erectus, which appeared at about this time, offered increased competitive advantages against large hominin carnivores. But the costs of these contests, the dangers, were likely even higher than they are in the modern situation. The carnivore guild was larger and more diverse than it is today and includes at least three saber-toothed cats and one or more large hyenas, all of which are now extinct. These images show the large carnivores, lions, and spotted hyenas, with which Hadza now contend for the control of large animal prey. In our experience, Hadza are always successful in, succeeding, in, in seizing fallen animals from these predators and rarely, if ever, lose control of prey they themselves have killed a success rate owed to their use of powerful bows, a technology that appears no more than 100,000 years ago. Homo erectus seems unlikely to have done, against, done as well against temp, tougher competition without these weapons. Still, they were successful on some occasions as evidenced by the large human-created bone assemblages recovered from 1.9 to 1.4 million-year-old sites at Olduwai and Kubifora. 
Why get involved in these contests, given the apparent risks? The answer may lie in the increase in longevity that had been underway for several hundred thousand years. If ancestral female fertility ended before age 50, as it does in the living great apes, and, and including humans, the increase in longevity shifted the mating age sex ratio from female to male biased. More, post -feme more postmenopausal females, but also more still fertile males. Theory and evidence from a wide range of taxa show that with female biased fertile sex ratios, multiple mating by males, pattern you see in chimpanzees, wins more paternities. But when the mating ratio is male biased, mate guarding males win more paternities. Why were the mate guarding efforts successful? Nick Blurton Jones has argued that large divisible resources acquired unpredictably like big game cost too much to defend from others claiming shares. They must be shared or more accurately surrendered to others. The nth bite of a meat, of meat that I consume from a kill is less valuable to me than to a competitor who has not yet eaten any. At the same time, the competitive abilities displayed in acquiring prey from non-human carnivores may earn deference from other men in a wide range of social situations, including the defense of proprietary claims on fertile women. It's these men, these co-resident fellows, whose respect must be earned. Success in obtaining a valued public good in dangerous circumstances may be one way of earning that respect. From this perspective, it was the shift toward mate guarding that accounted for the emergence of nuclear families. While behavior that intimidated large carnivore competitors led to increased consumption and intra-group meat sharing, they were the products of a trend toward greater longevity and other changes in, life, in hominin life history and body size that began long before the earliest evidence of substantial human carnivory. Conventional anthropological wisdom has it that success in big game hunting and scavenging, indicated by the, here by the distribution of meat from a giraffe carcass seized from non-human carnivores, was central to the initial evolution of human life history. But the argument that Hawks, Blurt, and Jones and I are making is that the ability and incentive to take such prey in, evolved as a consequence of dependence on savanna plant foods that entailed food sharing between senior women, like the one shown, and their grandchildren, patterns that are all well-documented among the Hadza. This is the dyad marked here by a Hadza grandmother and her granddaughter that initiated a pattern of food sharing that became central to human evolution more than 2 million years ago. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this. Have a great day. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.